Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. Hi, this is Karen Genoeth from the Education Trust. We've been talking with educators around the country about how they are facing the unprecedented challenge of helping children get smarter while being physically apart. Today, I'm really happy to be able to talk with Kennard Branch, principal of Garfield Prep Academy in Washington, D.C. I want to explain a little how I know Mr. Branch because it's a little bit of a story. Back in 2005, I first visited M. Hall Stanton Elementary School in Philadelphia where he taught fifth grade. I later wrote about Stanton in my book, It's Being Done, published by Harvard Education Press in 2007. Stanton was a remarkable story of improvement. It had gone from being one of the lowest performing schools in Philadelphia to one that outperformed the state in both reading and math. This improvement happened under the leadership of Principal Barbara Adderley, who dragged Mr. Branch out of his classroom into leadership roles. In 2007, Ms. Adderley left Philadelphia to become an assistant superintendent in her hometown of Washington, D.C. She later recruited Mr. Branch to be principal of Garfield, a school that demographically was quite similar to Stanton. Just about all its students are African-American children from low-income backgrounds. Like Stanton, Garfield is in a racially and economically isolated neighborhood, Ward 8, for those of you familiar with Washington, D.C. Just as Mrs. Adderley had years before, Mr. Branch walked into a mess of a school. Discipline was out of control. Teacher morale was low. Achievement was in the basement. There were a lot of examples of what a mess the school was, but here's one that really stuck in my head. When Mr. Branch arrived, the school had almost no books. Teachers were making their own little readers by stapling photocopies together. Garfield is a Title I school, meaning it receives money from the federal government that can be used to buy books and materials. The previous principal simply hadn't done so. Branch bought a lot of books. I wrote a little bit about Garfield in my last book, Schools That Succeed, published by Harvard Education Press in 2017, as part of documenting the long reach school and district leaders have in developing the next generation of leaders. Garfield Prep has improved quite a lot under Mr. Branch's leadership, and I wanted to hear how he and Garfield have been faring during this time of coronavirus. Mr. Branch, welcome. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. It's been a long time since we talked. Did I describe Stanton and Garfield and Ms. Adderley accurately? Yes, pretty much. I think I think back then I may have been teaching uh, fourth grade because I was a teacher who looped. Um, so it was like second, third, fourth. So I think that last year I was going into teaching fifth grade when Ms. Adderley uh, pulled me down to D.C. So I didn't realize that, actually. You you really have taught most of the grades of elementary yeah, school. Yeah, I've taught, I think, every grade in elementary school. Um, I was a fan of looping because I, I just prefer being able to start the next school year with my kids and pick right up where we left off. Um, we had Each year, we developed a strong relationship. We maintained them over the summer. So when we came back in September, and Philly, you came back after Labor Day. So when we came back in September, we can go right into uh, 
working in small groups and things like that. So it, we didn't lose any time. So looping was uh, very important for me. Well, I want to I want to get back to that and and hear about how that affects <laughs> your leadership now. But but before we even get there, I hope you and your ha- family are sa- safe and healthy. Yes, we're doing well. Um, my daughter is about to be twenty. No, yeah. Oh my gosh, <laughs> she turns twenty uh, in September. Um, she's a she'll be going into her junior year at Temple University. When the pandemic hit. Temple closed down as well. We had to go get her and bring her back home, um, I think around March 13th or 14th. Um, so she's been doing distance learning herself to finish up this semester. Um, and my wife is here. So uh, the three of us have been fine, staying as safe as possible, um, not moving around too much. And then the rest of my family is in Philly, um, and they're all in good spirits. So I thank you for, for asking me that. Washington, D.C. has had, at this point, almost 4,000 cases of coronavirus, about 600 of whom have been in Ward 8. Do you know if any of your families in, at Garfield have been affected? No, I can't say that um, any Garfield families have been, been affected. We, When we first learned about it, we tried to take a um, proactive approach and tried to educate ourselves on COVID-19 as much as possible. And then we went from there to trying to educate our students and and our families as much as we could. We used a lot of resources from our district, and then we relied heavily on resources from the CDC so that we can kind of share one constant message. And and so far, we've been pretty safe and, and fortunate. So what was your initial response? You say you tried to anticipate it. So were you able to kind of seamlessly... I, I I asked this almost ironically. You seamlessly moved into distance learning. I, I don't think so. I don't think anybody seamlessly moved in. No, we kind of had a, I don't want to say we had a, an advantage, but we are a blended learning school. Um, and then we're also a Microsoft school. So we have about uh, 20 teachers who have been learning how to teach with technology for like the last five or six years. And they actually go on to uh, Microsoft's Educator Center and they take uh, courses on their own time outside of school hours. And then our district and OSI um, provides them professional learning units for taking these courses. Um, I'm just so, going to say what OSI is. It's the, sorry, Office, of the, the Office of the State, of the Superintendent. State Superintendent of Education. So when we were first taking them, we were just taking the courses to become better at teaching with technology. And then when I told our central office team about it, they said, we're going to look into getting your teachers um, professional learning units, uh, PLUs, for doing all this additional work. That's kind of what gave us the advantage is that we were actually learning a lot of things that are needed right now. We were learning those types of instructional strategies the last three or four uh, years. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't seamless, but it wasn't a big lift for us. It was uh, I think the main difference is our kids are not with us; they're home because we've had teachers as recent as last school year who, um, let's say, we were teaching a Eureka math lesson, and the homework was going to be complicated. For students and parents may not have known how to uh, best support, we had teachers who were um, going online teaching 
parents how to support the homework and then sending those videos out. So we were kind of like on the verge of distance learning in some of our classes. But the blended learning piece has been, um, I guess, a big advantage because our students were used to using Microsoft. Uh, we use Microsoft Teams primarily. So our students were used to using Microsoft. They're used to emailing us um, documents. They're used to uh, making PowerPoint presentations. Um, some students know how to make a, a, a sway. So I, I, I don't know what have, a sway is. <laughs> it's, it's similar to a PowerPoint, but it's a Microsoft learning tool um, that students can, can have access to, similar to a Power, PowerPoint. And our students have been doing work like that for a while. So my second, third, fourth, fifth graders, they're doing pretty good. They're doing pretty good with it because they've been the ones working on it the longest. And do they all have computers at home and um, Wi-Fi? When the pandemic first really hit D.C. and we learned that we had to uh, close down and go to distance learning, um, I think it was on Friday, May 13th, um, that we learned we were closing. But we kind of saw like the writing on the wall and we started to prepare. So um, we have two teams at our school who support uh, our students' social, emotional, academic development. So we have a... Um, you have your regular academic leadership team, and then schools have their mental health team. So we have combined those two together, and it's called the Behavior Instructional Leadership Team. Um, so with this team, it's comprised of social workers, psychologists, instructional coaches, and our lead sped teachers. So on Friday the 13th, that team, when we learned we were really closing, uh, we were able to gather about three weeks of work packets. The district was sending things out. And then our teachers were getting things together also. So we spent that day putting together like three weeks of packets just in case. Um, and we wanted to make sure our students were taking those home. And then we was able to do a quick survey on that same day to assess uh, like students' needs in terms of who needs a device and uh, who needs um, like a hot, a hot spot because they internet access. Um, so in that day, we were able to find out that I would say about 50% of our kids didn't have uh, the devices at home. And then I would say a total of about 75% needed hotspots. So we were able to survey the students in the building before they left. And then we were able to reach out to our parents um, via Dojo, Class Dojo, which is another uh, tool that we use to communicate with our parents. And we were able to figure that data out right after Right after the school closed on the 13th, that following week, our district shifted spring break up to that week. So we were able to reach out to our parents based off that data. And we started to begin distributing our own like classroom devices um, to parents who indicated um, a need. And then our district came. They really came through because they ended up giving devices to, to high school middle and elementary. So we no longer had to use our own in-house devices. The district uh, shipped some devices to us. And then from there, that's when we was able to really close the, the, the gap and make sure that every student who whose parent indicated a need, we were able to schedule an appointment for their parents to come up and, and, and pick up a device and a hotspot or some parents we had, they just needed the hotspot. They say, we have laptops and iPads, but we don't have any uh, internet access. So some parents came just for a hotspot, and some parents came for both. And 
we've been, I think that was early on, but every week since, uh, I say March 16th, every week after that, we've opened the building up uh, two days a week. And if parents are having trouble with their devices or if for some reason the device doesn't work, we give them a date and time to come back. And someone from uh, our leadership team reports to the school and they'll troubleshoot to see if we can fix the device or we'll just give you a new one. And when it, when those things happen, we have to coordinate with uh, central office, MPD and school security now because we still want to practice social uh, distancing. So like this week, if we were open yesterday and today, we had to tell the district in advance, and then we would tell our parents, we're going to be here from 8.30 to 2.30, and then we would give everybody slots. And then the police would come to our school, they would spend the whole day and space themselves like six feet apart. Parent would come to the building, tell the first police officer where they're here to pick up. That police officer sends the parent to the next station, a person and then that parent tells that officer and then that's where our staff member and the officer um assist in giving the device to the parent and then the parent leaves out and then the next one comes comes in wow that, that those that's very elaborate <laughs> preparation and precautions that you have to take yeah but everybody time, stays safe that, but you don't you haven't had any coronavirus yeah cases. And, and, and everybody stays safe and it didn't start out that way but as things progressed that was the 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 records we got from our um our chancellor like we had to make sure if we were coming back to the school we had to follow the chain of command make sure that everybody was notified knew about it and then we were all on the um, same page. And then even outside of coronavirus, it's also good to have the police there just because you have parents leaving out with uh, devices and they're walking back down um, the street. And after a while, everybody knows that, oh, they're walking up to the school to get computers or, 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 or um, hotspots. So, so they need some protection. Yeah, it is a nice added layer of security. I know you think in very systematic ways about identifying problems, thinking about solutions, monitoring outcomes, adjusting in the light of those outcomes. The, 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 that is how you think. Um, and try, I'm, <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious how you're applying that general approach in these times. You know, how is that helping Garfield sort of adjust to this new time. Um, you've already kind of answered that because you had this system in place where teachers were already working on blended learning. But um, I wonder if, if there are other ways that, that the way you approach system, systems thinking um, has helped or not helped. I would say, I would say yes, because I try to consider myself like a, a future ready leader. And one of the things I really pride myself on is trying to be proactive and like know what's what's coming. Um, and I think our district does that too. So at the same time, I was thinking of like a a, a crisis plan for COVID nineteen. I believe our district was right there too. Because as I was like trying to put together a plan for our school, the next thing I know, our district had all the guidance laid out. And if you look at it in terms of like um, I don't want to get into like Bloom's needs versus like Maslow's needs. But if you look at it, I think the very first thing 
we wanted to do was make sure our students were going to be fed, right? So we considered uh, food and and taking care of that need. So one of the things our district did, um, they made it so whether school was open or not, all parents and students could still come to schools to receive uh, meals. And then they took it a step further and they started to um, offer free groceries at like, like 10 school sites. So the first thing was to look at it like in the order of needs. What's the first thing families are going to need to be able to survive through this? And then once we knew that food and those types of necessities were out the way, then we started to think about, okay, what will um, instruction look like? Um, so that was our, our next step. How can we engage our students in, in learning at home? So our district, in addition to the work packets, because everybody at the time, and some still may not have a device, but everybody at that time across our city didn't have devices. So the work packets were a key next step to put into the, the hands of our, our students and their families. And then our district went from sending, they sent work packets out, and then we created our own work packets as well. And then our district has this online learning hub that we call Canvas where parents can go to get uh, educational resources from from pre-K-3 up through 12th grade. And if you look on it, I think we've had about 2 million page views, right? So we know that we, know that we took care of, of their food needs. Then we know that we gave some resources to get started with instruction. We considered, we started to think about, okay, what about... Uh, kids who don't have a computer and we don't want them doing work packages all day. So then our district created a, a YouTube channel, like a YouTube video channel where our teachers are teaching lessons. So as long as you have um, even your phone, you can access YouTube. And then we also start to work with Comcast and Verizon and our teachers would teach live lessons and our district set it up so that those lessons are played on television, 9.30 in the morning and 11 o'clock in the morning, and then they're re-aired at, at 1 o'clock. You take, care of your, your, you take care of food, you take care of the at-home learning, then you start to think about your teachers and what types of support they would need. One, one thing I learned quickly is that our teachers were asking me, could they come back to the school because they needed to get like either their unit book or they needed some supplies because they were literally turning their home uh, living rooms into classrooms. So it's like, I need some chart paper. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't keep going back to the school. Um, so I asked my boss, I asked my boss who's the instructional superintendent. I was like, we had to find a way to get uh, supplies delivered to the teacher's houses. And I don't know what happened from the conversation that she and I had, but the next thing I know, I just know she took it to her boss, who's the chief of schools. And the next thing I know, our district was sending uh, e-gift cards to all of the teachers in the district so that they can buy supplies for remote learning at home. And I think the teachers just go online and you order from whatever company and the items are delivered to your house as opposed to like how everything used to get sent to, to our school. Um, so that was key because you asked teachers to do this big shift from home from work instruction to home instruction. And then you don't, if you don't give them anything, it's hard for them to be successful. So giving out those e-gift cards were um, big. And then from there, it's like, okay, now we're giving them supplies. How do you professionally develop them? Because 
every teacher in our building didn't necessarily sign up for uh, distance learning. Like if you come to my school, you know we're blended learning and you know you're gonna do a lot with technology, but you did not sign up <laughs> like to teach from your house. So uh, we had to figure out a way to provide our teachers professional development while at the same time um, trying to not overwhelm them because like they're living in the middle of a pandemic. So our instructional coaches, they played a, a critical part in helping us design like on-demand professional development. So we created, through our use of Microsoft, we created a, a distance learning channel just for professional professional development. Um, and then we have videos like how to access Microsoft Teams, how to create an assignment, how to load an assignment. And in our district, they have something similar for the entire district. So sometimes I can go into the district website and pull a video and post it on our channel, or one of our teachers would just make a video and post it on post it on another channel. And then our coaches also meet with our teachers virtually uh, once a week on Thursdays from 3.30 to 5, just to go over like anything, any troubles or issues they may, may be having, or to help them do a more effective job of uh, working with remote learning. Once we got the professional development piece laid down, the only two other things we considered was still keeping um, technology strong, so still making sure our students had access to technology, and those hotspots that our district gave out were very powerful because um, all of our parents could not afford uh, internet access. And then the last piece where we are right now is just like maintaining engagement with our families and trying to, we have like a, I guess trying to make sure their remaining needs are taken care of outside of food, clothing, shelter, anything. So we have a wellness committee um, in our district. They're also doing something where they're spearheading these wellness checks. So if schools haven't heard from their families in a number of days, then our district is reaching out or making sure that all schools reach out to keep those parents connected. But on our school level, if we don't hear from you after three days of instruction, so if we engage with you in online learning and we don't hear from you in three days, or we send out some text messages and we don't hear from you, then our school wellness committee, they jump into action. And they will try to find out what's going on and see if they can remove any of the barriers that may be stopping a student or a family from engaging in online learning. It could be another thing. Some parents say they have so much stuff going on, they just didn't have time to put the kids on. Some parents, even though we thought we gave out enough devices, they say, well, I got four or five kids. You gave me one, or you gave me two. So then it's like, okay, we had to find a way to almost make it one-to-one -one in the house, the same way we make it one-to-one -one in the um, in the classroom. It's just, that's our main piece right now, keeping our families engaged, keeping students engaged, and trying our best to maintain like great relationships where they don't feel we're like intruding, but knowing that we're really trying to help them out as much as we can. And also taking everything into consideration Letting our parents know and our staff know that, like, we're not coming down on everybody. Like, you have to try to be, I try to be much more flexible than I am during the regular school year. <laughs> I try to be much more um, thought, thoughtful 
and then and definitely being much more available to like my entire school community. But I just try to look at it like the, what we need from Blooms, what you need from Maslow, and then try to build like a sequence of uh, support. Well, I think you just demonstrated how you think systematically and yeah. <laughs> systematically. <laughs> that was an amazing <laughs> kind of recitation of, of systemic thinking. What What's your biggest worry right now? Um, I think you remember I was an extended year school for like the last two years. So I'm always worried about, I'm always trying to find a way to do more with instructional time. We're not extended year anymore. And the reason I did that, as you guys, as you all know, is about, if you look at that research around summer learning laws, you know, the students from lower social economic backgrounds, like the school I service, tend to, to fall behind over the summer. And then we come back in August, we typically get our students to where they need to be in June, right? Reading and performing math on or above grade level. Then we come back in there and they drop like two or three levels just with the two months. So my fear now is without, without our children actually being in the building from March 13th to whenever school starts back up, I'm worried if they'll be further behind than their, their peers. That's one of the things that keeps me up because now we used to try to find ways to keep them engaged over the summer, just hoping to maintain their academic um, performance levels. Now, if we're doing distance learning March, April, May, June, all the way through, it's a concern that they may be a little further behind. It's a concern that my teachers may have a lot more work on their hands to, to catch them up. And I'm concerned about, um, like, if you think about it socially and emotionally, I'm concerned about the grief and the trauma that they may be going through and how we're going to address that when we return to our school. How are we going to address that for our students, uh, our, our parents, and for our staff while still moving them moving them academically? That's my, that's my main thing. Is if they're going to fall behind, and then how to deal with the, the grief and the trauma they have experienced these past few months. Do you have any initial thoughts about how to do that? For example, I'm wondering, I mean, are you looping? Do, is that something you normally do? <laughs> um, looping is one thing that is definitely on the table. Um, and by looping, I mean yeah, keeping the same students with the same teacher. Yeah, yes. So looping is one thing we're definitely thinking of because um, we have some strong teachers across the board. And one thing that would eliminate the need to really have to do a lot of the hard work of building relationships with new teachers and new students is to have this year's teacher loop to the next grade. So that is definitely one thing that we are considering. And we've had about three or four teachers ask me already, can they loop? But it's just a decision that we have to make based off student level data and based off the, the skills and abilities of the teachers. And I have an academic leadership team who I consult with before we make the final decision. But looping would be that would give us a big advantage going into to next school year. Another thing that would help as far as the social emotional learning is keeping our students and our parents connected with our behavior instructional leadership team. Um, 
but we were trying to find a way next year to build in like an advisory period, kind of like middle and high schools have, where we can just have our social worker and our psychologist teach courses or co-teach courses so that we can discuss any of the ACEs, adverse childhood experiences that may have come about during this time. And we're going to have to really teach social emotional learning as a content area next year. It's going to need the same attention that uh, math and reading receives on a daily basis. Well, I think everybody can hear how responsible you feel for the school, for the staff, (laughs) for the students. And uh, do you have any support network for yourself? Um, yeah, I guess my, my family, definitely my, my family, my, my boss, our instructional superintendent, she meets with us, uh, once a week as a group. And then we have one-on-one private check-in, not private, but just, just her and and the principal, uh, one-on-one check-in. And that's the time for us to discuss anything. It's not as like as scripted as an agenda that she has with the whole group. And then I have mentors like Ms. Airely, who I can uh, rely on if, if needed. I can try to think about some of the things that they, they've done. And then if I need like support or need to be lifted up, there's teams in my school who uh, support our teachers and staff, um, and I can go to them too. We have this, the built team that I mentioned. They have uh, two weekly meetings. They have something called Wellness Wednesdays where teachers come and have these virtual meetings to learn how to take better care of themselves and learn more about self-care. And then we have a meeting on Mondays from uh, 12 to 1. Uh, It's called Garfield Strong. So if you're going through uh, grief or if you are in a state of bereavement, um, you can come on and have meet with us virtually. So I haven't had the need yet to, to go to that team for support but I am a supporting member of, of that team. Um, thank, th- thank you so much. I, I knew I wanted to talk to you about this, about your response to coronavirus, and I really appreciate it. No problem, no problem at all. I want to now introduce my colleague from EdTrust, Tanji Reed Marshall. Tanji is EdTrust Director of Practice. Tanji, um, you and I have been talking about how the leaders we're talking with bring this systematic approach to how they're going to handle this crisis, in part because they handle a lot of crises, and this is just one of them. It's a big one, right? A big one. That's right. Yeah. Um, So first, wow, you know, hearing from uh, Kennard Branch was fascinating, and I'm struck by the way in which he just, you know, laid out this approach, right? Like first step here, second step here, third step here. And I hearken back to Dr. Sterling where he talked about the phase in like phases, right? Like we went through phases. We did these things in phases. And, and he was the first one to name the relationship between why you focus on immediate needs first before academics, right? So there's been this like, Twitter conversation about the dynamics between Maslow's core needs and then Bloom's taxonomy. And, you know, we live at the vortex of both of them, 
And during this time period, we have to decide which one rises. And so right now, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is sort of rising to the top, not that Bloom's is onto the side, but you can't learn if you're hungry. You know, if you can't, if your need, if your basic need is, I need a computer in order to do the levels of Bloom, then don't talk to me about Bloom if I don't get my need met. So it's like, you know, this really delicate dance, and maybe it's not delicate, maybe it's just, you know, the full-on way in which we have to think through that connection between meeting needs and then get into the academics and the instructional piece, which I think is absolutely what is happening. And he gave us the technical names to it all, which is great. Right. But also this very, um, you know, they know, they know that schools are complicated places, right? They're always complicated places. There's always, they're like little towns in the sense that, you know, they, they, Sometimes I refer to them as little patent places, not not for the scandalous part, but right. just the <laughs> but just yeah the continual um, emotional drain of of life, of right? Humanity. Of, of humanity. Like, this exactly. really is that human. It exactly. Is the, Grandparents yeah. die. Parents die. Mm-hmm. Children die. I mean, horrible things happen, and um, and there's almost always some kind of uh, response that has to happen within a school and within the people of the school. And what he, he was talking about is they have a system for that. They know there are going to be, there are going to be, um, sadnesses and tragedies, Mm -hmm. and they have a system for how they can surround people with some support. That's right. Right. So I thought was great. They're not just waiting for, something terrible to happen. Um, And, you know, anybody who's had kids in school, even if their lives are charmed and they have not had tragedies, there was a kid who got hit by a bus. That's right. There was a child who committed suicide. There was, you know, there was something terrible. That's right. And when schools are caught off guard and think, oh, well, terrible things shouldn't happen and this means we're not a good school or something like that, that's not helpful to everybody within the school. They need to have some kind of system, and he described that system, right? It's That's a wellness right. committee. There's a committee for that. Right? There's a built, right? He had to talk right. about the built, right? You know, right. Um, the behavior instructional team. He talked about the instructional leadership team. He talked about what was fascinating is he named himself as a future-ready educator. And so that sort of naming of yourself automatically positions you for the way you go about your work. You have to think, well, this is now, what's going to happen next? Right. You always position, if future ready is your characteristic and your identity, you live that out. So being prepared, as he said, you know, as I was preparing, you know, I heard the winds coming, right? And so I was preparing because I'm future ready. Right. We know that our students are going to deal with a lot of mixed emotions about having to come back into the building. So we're going to be future ready and put in place systems and structures. And we're going to look at social and emotional learning as an actual content area. 
right? As this thing that we have to help kids sort of re-engage with. And so being future ready really does position, you know, Mr. Branch for being systematic because you can't just be dreaming about the future. <laughs> you kind of like, it's when you, you blink, the future is right in front of you. And so this idea that he's future ready is really important and a nice dynamic, you know, which I think all of our previous guests have said, but he gave it an actual name. He gave it a right? name. Like they they all right. say, they all act as though they are future ready, but he named it as future ready, which is important. Well, and the other thing that he alluded to, but didn't, I'll just, I'll just kind of name it a little bit more. He said, we have to make these decisions based on data, based on information. Mm-hmm. And, um, that sounds like it's not future ready, but it is because it is. <laughs> having been in his school, I know this, he's continually thinking, okay, well, uh, let's bring everybody together. Let's try something. Okay. Let's see if it worked. Did it work? If it didn't work, let's try something else. Mm-hmm. And always moving to the future of we're going to be more successful in the future than we are in the, in the, in the present. In the present, right. Um, and that continual uh, sort of scientific method uh, uh, cycle is absolutely key um, to his leadership, I know. And it was to his mentor, Barbara Adderley, who I observed in Philadelphia. And um, if, uh, if people are interested in the story of Stanton, I tell it first in the how in it's being done. And then later I uh, talk about it in Schools That Succeed. It, it ended up being a tragedy of urban education, in my opinion, um, because it was quite a well-performing school. She left to go to Washington. The district put in a principal who did not understand how to run a school like that, and it kind of immediately fell apart, and uh, it was closed a few years later. The, schools are all complicated places, but uh, Mr. Branch runs a very particularly challenging school, and he does yeah. it in a way, in such a thoughtful way, yeah. that um, uh, it, it really is inspiring. So, okay, well, I think that, that wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. Our aim is to bring you the voices of effective educators grappling with all the, the questions of equity and excellence that face educators today. Every one of the folks we have talked with is facing this unprecedented time with courage and a surprising amount of resilience and good humor. I'm heartened every time I hear such smart, dedicated people talk about the work they are doing to keep their students from losing too much because of the pandemic. I've started to hear from educators out there that you're finding these conversations helpful. If you think this is a valuable podcast, I hope you'll recommend it to your friends and networks please leave a review wherever you get this podcast. That will help steer people in our direction. If you want to be in touch, you can email extraordinarydistricts at edtrust.org or tweet at edtrust or me at Karen Chenoweth or Tangi at remarsh76. Mike Patillo records and edits this podcast through the magic of Zoom from Tonal Park. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust who helped with getting this podcast launched. And thank you to the Wallace Foundation for providing financial support. Thanks, and see you next time.